You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Hello. Great to see you all. Great to have such a packed Sunday. It's an exciting morning. Um, I'm Rich. I'm part of the church here. And um, I'm doing the second in a five-part sermon series this week. Um, we previously have done a sermon series which is about what we believe, the core doctrines, the core values and beliefs of our church. And uh, what we're doing now is saying, well, more than just talk about theology, how do we make the doctrine of the gospel actually come out in the way that we live our lives? So we're talking about application for a few weeks. And um, the gospel and the doctrines that we've studied should be in our day-to-day lives, our work, in our families, in our communities, and I believe should overflow into this city. And we're going to look at that a bit this morning. Uh, We're going to look at that I've summed up in this way. We're looking at issues that Christians will need to think through and live out in their lives in 2018. So this is very much a current sermon series for what we think about in the culture at the moment. When we think about our culture at the moment, um, it's important that we talk about all kinds of different areas of life. And so today, this week and next week, in fact, we're doing a two-parter on the topic of sex, sexuality, love, romance, and marriage, and how a belief in God and the gospel should affect that. If you'll come with me, this is what we think we're going to do today. Um, Firstly, we're going to look at some foundations. We're going to unpack what that means Then we're going to look at our hyper-sexualized cultural moment. We're in an unusual moment in history in the UK, and we're going to look at what that means. And then, really, the main crux of this is we're going to be landing with everyday application for those here who are married, those who are dating, and those here who are single. Now, when it comes to sex and sexuality, we all bring something to the table in terms of our previous experience, in terms of the things that we think and believe and our circumstances. But for all of us in the room, I'm hoping today and next week will help raise our vision up to what God says and to what Scripture teaches us. So let's kick off and look at some foundations. I've got five foundations. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, what we're trying to get out of this in terms of foundations is for you to be very clear on what God teaches. And we are looking to submit the whole of our lives to God. So it's all very well saying, I stand arms high and heart abandoned. I'm here to give you my singing. I'm here to give you my heart and my mind. But are we here to give God our bodies? In some ways, you can say that if you're not following Jesus in all, you're not following Jesus at all. So that's the type of challenge. Strap in. If you're not a Christian here today, if you're not following Jesus, we are not expecting you to live the way that Jesus tells you to live when it comes to sex and sexuality. We're not telling you that you need to believe this. More than anything, maybe see this morning as a window into what Jesus says that those who follow him should look like and how that's counter to some of the cultural norms in the UK. Five foundations. Firstly, sex and sexuality matters to God. Matthew 19, Jesus Jesus himself talks about sex. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate, which you hear sometimes read out at weddings. 
Sex and sexuality matters to God. God made man and woman each to be a reflection of God. But together, when they are unified in sex and in marriage, there is something even more reflective of God who is himself many and one. So it matters to God. Foundation number two, the Bible isn't actually shy or silent when it comes to sex. And believe it or not, the Bible is not as shy and silent as many churches are. If marriage is immensely important to God, and it is, and if sex is a marvellous gift from God, which it is, it's entirely appropriate for God to tell us in Scripture how to understand it and how to enjoy it. And Jesus, as we've already seen, he's not embarrassed to talk about sex, so we shouldn't be. You might be sitting here thinking, man... Is this appropriate? Is the stuff we're going to cover this week and next week? I haven't even told you what we're going to cover, but is it appropriate? Well, if we don't get our information from the Word of God, we will get it from somewhere else. And if you're a parent here, if your children and your family don't get information about sex and sexuality from God, they will get it from somewhere else. Thirdly, sex is more than just physical technique. Believe it or not. Our society, as we'll see in a minute, is obsessed with sex as a physical technique. But the Bible says it's far more important than that and has a holistic understanding of sex being about a whole life union. Sex, you could summarize the Bible's teaching in some ways as being about saying to another person, I belong completely, exclusively, permanently to you. And when sex is used to say that, it's incredibly valuable and rich and is spiritually significant. Fourth foundation. Sex inside of a committed marriage is a powerful, beautiful fire. So God created sex and it matters to him. But it wasn't that when God made Adam and Eve, he then went off to get a coffee and came back and was like, what are you doing? This is crazy. I didn't think you would do this. No, God within marriage has designed this. He has created it. We read right in the beginning, as Jesus refers back to um, the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Not gross, it's not sinful, it's satisfying and created by God. And controversial in some churches to say this, but sex isn't just about having kids. In fact, you've got a book like Song of Solomon in the Bible, which is all about the pleasure of romance and sex and is never mentioning having children. Within committed marriage, if you love God, there is no shame in sex. Your conscience is clear. But we say within marriage because there's a trust that's built between a husband and wife that's sacred. You trust and know and love and you're enjoying one another in a way that nobody else can and no one else knows you that way. And the final foundation before we look at our culture is this. Sex outside of marriage is not God's design. And that's crazy to say in London in 2018. Saying to another person, I belong completely, exclusively, permanently to you, can only be said, the Bible says, inside of a marriage with 100% full commitment. Because sex has huge power. I've talked about um, sex being like a fire. Uh, Tim Keller describes how sex in a marriage is like blowing on 
coals of a fire and this beautiful thing arising. But actually, if you think about a fire in a fireplace, um, now the evenings are getting cold, it's nice to have a fireplace and see that light. But if you light a fire not in the fireplace in your house, it burns the whole thing down. Sex outside of heterosexual marriage is not God's design. And some of you might say, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or I think I've got an exception. Or I think I am an exception. Whatever it is, if it's outside of heterosexual marriage, sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, adultery, porn, whatever it is, it's not God's design. And that is some of the foundations of the Bible. If you have over the course of today, or over the course of next Sunday's sermon, some questions that you would like to ask, especially as I've got a whole week to think about what the answers might be, I would encourage you to email. Mark has got the email address. Hello at redeemerlondon.org, and Mark will answer them all. But seriously, we are going to be a church that has a healthy attitude to sex and sexuality, and that doesn't mean hiding in the shadows and thinking it's something we shouldn't talk about. So if you want to pose a question, I'll see what I can do next week. (laughs) Okay, let's look at our hyper-sexualized cultural moment. We live after the sexual revolution in the UK and in the West, and the sexual revolution has reduced sex down, and it has cheapened it. And I want to prove it to you in a few ways. Catholic author Mary Eberstad says in a book called Adam and Eve After the Pill, which is a great name for a book, the sexual revolution was the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. Why are you so uptight about sex, you could say, to the church or to me or to somebody in the church? It's just a desire. It's a natural appetite. When I need water, I have a drink. When I feel aroused, I have sex. When I feel aroused, I masturbate to porn. What's so bad about that? Well, culture has reduced sex down to hygienic recreation. And that is eating us alive in the UK and in the West. With shame and guilt and impact on our communities and impact on our children's upbringings. It's an experiment that has gone crazily wrong. Evangelical author Nancy Piercy says in a book called Love Thy Body, Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. The same bleak view of sexuality is inculcated in even young children. A video put out by Children's Television Workshop, widely used in sex education classes, defines sexual relations as simply something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. No mention of marriage or family or even love or commitment. No hint that sex has a richer purpose than sheer sensual gratification. And that's a really nice summary, I think, of where we are in society at the moment. The average 12-year-old boy in the UK has seen more naked women than his grandfather would have seen in a lifetime. By age 8, a lot of kids are seeing porn on the internet. By age 11, most kids have seen porn on the internet. The number one consumer of porn is 12 to 17-year-old boys, and the average 16-year-old has had sex with somebody. Sexual revolution in the UK has contributed to a commodification of not just sex, but of people. Sexual slavery and sex trafficking in London, we're not just talking about other places, is an issue. One in four women 
and one in six men is sexually assaulted. We live in a culture which is obsessed with the physical of sex, but has totally ripped it apart from that union and what we were talking before about God's foundation for sex, the core longing and the impact that sex has. So I want to demonstrate it in a couple of ways, our cultural moment. And firstly, I've asked four people to come out to the front with a piece of paper. So if you are one of those four people, if you can come and stand here, that would be amazing. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia Chronicles, uh, is an incredibly eloquent Christian writer, and he writes about love. He describes love as being four words, and there's a great book called The Four Loves, which I'd recommend you have a read. It's quite dense, but it's good. So he says, you've got romantic love. Who's romantic love? There we are, can't they? I asked Conway which one he wanted, and he said I wanted romantic. So, <laughs> Romantic love, the word eros. Eros, we get the word erotic from eros. Being in love or loving someone, that's romantic love. Affection, who's got affection? Well, fondness, that's kind of familiarity, a sense of nostalgic love. You know, like special moments, that's affection. Friendship, Hannah's got the friendship. Strong shared common values, interest activities, being close, almost like a sibling. Got it so far? So we've got romantic, got affection, we've got friendship. And then agape is a word that refers to unconditional love, regardless of changing circumstances, and selfless love. And that is the love that God has for us. In our hypersexualized cultural moment, this is an explanation of the problem. That if we start with romantic and then we swap in affection for agape, so you guys swap places, and then we swap friendship for agape as well, the average person looking for romance and love and sex in the UK, maybe on Tinder, maybe by just casually dating, starts off by looking at a partner and thinking, Eros, are they hot? Is this somebody I want to have sex with? Is this somebody that I think I'm attracted to? And they start there, and then they move on to, well, maybe now we've already had sex, or maybe we've already explored something sexually. Have I got any affection for you? Would it actually be nice to have some nice moments, some nostalgic moments? But we'll deal with that after that. And then, we've had some moments, but do we want to be friends? I'm not really sure. I'm thinking about dating, I'm thinking about, I've got other partners, maybe I'll go back to square one with somebody else, but friendship is something I'll later explore, and then finally, am I looking to commit to something, to be sacrificial? Probably not, let's start swiping on Tinder again. And so the sexualized, hyper-sexualized culture has the loves in that order. That's not good, that's not healthy, that's not helpful, it's a commodification of people, Seeing somebody naked in 2018 is, for many people, an embarrassment because they themselves have seen so much porn or seen so much nakedness that it's just a comparison game, and so sometimes they never even get past the eros. That's not the way it's meant to be. What about God's standards? How do we order the loves in the kingdom of God in this cultural moment? We read, husbands... 
In Ephesians 5, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So when you are formed by Jesus and his people and his word, you flip it right around. So you start off with this attitude of agape love. Can I position my heart as a man or woman of God where I'm thinking about sacrifice? I'm thinking about others first. I'm thinking about commitment before I even start. Secondly, how do I form a friendship? What does that mean? How can I find things that I have in common? How can I, within the context of thinking about the long term and not just my own gratification, develop a friendship? Third, you would say, how do I really get to enjoy moments with this person? It's something a little bit more exclusive as I begin to commit to them. And then finally, within the context of commitment and marriage, the lifelong unity, the deepness of sexual relationship in marriage, then we arrive at romance. It is completely the other way around in the kingdom of God. But that's a demonstration, I think, using the loves of where we are in our cultural moment. Thank you very much, guys. Another way to look at it is something that Kezia and I have talked a bit this week about as I've been processing with her some of the things that I could say on a Sunday and some of the things I probably shouldn't say on a Sunday in our church. Why is it that there are so many single, beautiful, talented, godly young women in this church? Could it be that we're in a cultural moment where men in this church, especially younger men in this church, have adopted the order of loves where they first of all think, are you hot? And don't allow a godly imagination about what a beautiful life could be with a godly, talented, beautiful woman of God. Maybe that's something I want to just drop a bombshell on. Okay, so the other way to visualize our cultural moment is with two bits of tape. We've been decorating our house this week. Kezi has bought very, I think, overly expensive masking tape. So I've bought it here to waste. Okay, glue. The word glue is a way of thinking about our cultural moment. And that is to tape these two bits of tape together. So that when a man and a woman really want to say, through thick and thin through marriage vows, through standing in front of a community and saying, whatever happens, I'm going to be with you, then sex is a really lovely glue. In fact, it's more than lovely. It's a unique thing in the universe where you're saying, all that I am, I give to you, I'm glued to you. So sex is a unique way of doing that. It's deep, it's spiritual. We crave intimacy, but you can't find it in a one-night stand when it's actually this type of glue we're looking for. But when we glue outside of that, what happens is we have to try and unpick it. And it doesn't really work. Because that's not the way it's made. That's not what it's for. There's quite a lot of bits left. There's quite a lot of brokenness. It's difficult to go back Because that's not what sex is for, the one night stand. We are in a society that has cheapened sex 
And that means we are oversexed but confused about what sex and sexuality really is and what it really means and what it's really for. And so, to the third part of the sermon, how do we apply any of this into our lives? And that's what this whole sermon series is about. And this week and next week, I want it to be practical. So we're going to look at this for the married, for those who are dating, and for those who are single. Romans 12 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. We want to pursue a life more like Jesus and less like our dysfunctional culture. And sex and sexuality, and this might be your main takeaway today, sex, your sex life and your sexuality are not something to be kept to yourself and hidden from God. That as we present our worship to God, it's not just our hearts and minds, but it's our bodies and our sex and sexuality. Start with the married. Hands up if you're married here. I'm glad we've got no half hands, like, maybe. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 7, uh, version, uh, the message version says, sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced or fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out, which I think is a really nice way of saying we in marriage are servants if we're thinking about sex. I've put a scale for each of these different couples. So we've got a scale for the married, a scale for the dating and a scale for the single. We'll start with the scale for the marriage. Do you think on the scale from selfish to servant, you're doing well? And then turn to your spouse. What do they think? (laughs) What do they think in terms of whether you're doing well? Marriages with love which is selfless and with lovers who are selfless and servants are great. They're fun. They last. Jesus says, you want to be great? serve. So you want to do great in your marriage, it's the same principle. Inside and outside of the bedroom, the New Testament talks to us about considering others more significant than ourselves. So if you are a humble servant, in and outside of the bedroom in your marriage, that will translate into deep, satisfying romance. Across this church, I'd love for married couples to have an approach that says, I want to be more like Jesus in my marriage, in the way that I am romantic, in the way that I'm encouraging, in the way that I'm thinking of the other person first. Therefore, I want to be an increasingly servant-hearted husband and married to an increasingly servant-minded wife. And we'll never be like Jesus. We'll never get it to the Jesus standard of servanthood, laying down his life. But... That's the trajectory we should be on. And it starts with words, and it can end with sex. But often it starts with words, doesn't it? Thinking of the other person. And it starts with tone, and it starts with a surprise, and it starts with consistent positivity. And it's all servant-hearted, isn't it? You come home from work, and you really want to talk about yourself and your day, and you really want to spend some money on yourself, and you really want to think about what your vacation, your holiday is going to look like for yourself. But... Actually, that's not what we're called to with our sex and sexuality and in marriage overall. C.J. Mahaney's written a great book, Sex, Romance and the Glory of God, it's called. He says, a couple that enjoy great sex 
as biblically defined, is also a couple that has good, honest, open conversation about a lot of things, including sex. So here's a challenge for you. If you're married, I've got some questions for you to ask each other. Oh, that didn't go down very well. So you can take your phone out and take a photo of the screen, and your homework between now and next week is to ask each other these questions. They are about being servant-hearted. I want to be an unselfish spouse and lover. How can I serve you better? Practically, emotionally, spiritually, verbally, and physically. There's question number one. Guys, if you are embarrassed by asking these questions or answering these questions, that's just pride. We don't really go for that in this church. Just go for it. Second, how can I learn and grow in my demonstration of love to you? And it's not the way that I want to demonstrate it that matters. It's the way that you would like me to demonstrate it that matters. Are there sinful reasons that we're not intimate? I was reading this week about how prolific it is in, especially the lives of those with international ministry, churches, church leaders, and people who are traveling around the world to not sleep with their wives for years. And I think, controversial as it might sound, we're quite likely in a church to talk to somebody who's doing too much sexually. But are we ever going to say to somebody, you're not doing enough sexually within your marriage? Are there sinful reasons we're not intimate? Selfishness, laziness, bitterness, porn, adultery? It could be other things. Do you dare ask that question in your marriage? Kezia and I are going to ask that question this week. I'll ask you to as well. I'll see you next week. Okay, for couples who are dating, let's do some application for the dating. I won't ask you to put your hand up just in case you're not 100% sure if you are dating or not. The other person isn't. (laughs) Dating isn't so much in the Bible. Believe it or not, dating, 1914, first use of the word dating in any literature. In the Bible, it was arranged marriage, and actually dating has come out of a culture that's not 100% biblical. It's moved away from a man coming to a family and saying, would you have a look at my skill and character? Would you look at my life? Instead to actually based on romance and eros rather than friendship, based on having fun instead of character assessment. But that's not to say we don't date. I'm just saying it's not something that's taught about in the Bible. But within a dating relationship, the scale is this. I feel like because dating relationships outside of the church have all kinds of sex in them, all kinds of cohabiting, all kinds of freedom in them, that it's really my right as a Christian who's dating to get to benefit from all those things myself. And that's the challenge I want to put into application today. God has made the fulfillment of that intimate sexual relationship to be a byproduct of commitment-based love. And so, in fact, the joy of intimacy, especially sexually, is to be the reward of commitment in a dating relationship. And actually, that reward comes most and in its fullest, at the commitment of marriage. We love intimacy, don't we? We like to receive from another person the deepest parts of who they are. But here's a challenge for you if you're dating. Don't start what you don't plan to finish. And I say that especially to guys. Do not pursue a relationship unless you are ready for commitment. Do not treat each other's bodies as your own unless you've been fully united, because biblically that's for marriage. Intimacy between a man and a woman sexually is icing on a beautiful cake. But the vast majority of dating in our culture, and dare I say it, in church culture still, is all icing. Without purpose or a clear destination. And the alternative to this is saying, God, your will be done. 
My sex and sexuality is a worship act to you. Your will be done. Thinking about having sex whilst dating, an Anglican pastor and author called Jonathan Grant, in a book called Divine Sex, A Compelling Vision for Christian Relationships in a Hypersexualized Age, says, serial monogamy, that is a string of consecutive sexual relationships, actually hinders eventual marital satisfaction, whilst sexual experience before marriage is a good indicator for an increased likelihood of infidelity within marriage. You don't believe me that the Bible teaches that, just take some statistics on board. If you spend your time giving in to your sexual desire for sexual gratification in the short term, the ability to rein that in is a challenge. You won't, by the time you get to a serious, committed relationship, have developed the instincts and the capability, the capacities and the patterns to be faithful in a marriage. So there's a challenge for you if you're dating. And finally, a challenge for you in applying this in our cultural moment in our single lives. This is hard. You know what they say, like a hard word, a hard preach develops soft people. A soft preach develops hard people. So this week and, dare I say, especially next week, where we're going to be covering topics like Tinder, porn, masturbation, lust, purity, and following Jesus in the mess, it's going to maybe be a hard word for some to receive. But we're in a unique cultural moment, so I'm just going to go for it. Keeping this thought going of developing patterns, if as a single person you're consciously resisting temptation and channeling your sex drive, in marriage you will have experience and a track record of doing that in the radical way of Jesus. And that's a really good thing to aim for in your singleness. Ultimately, there are only two choices. Whilst we might think that sex and porn, masturbation, and just having whatever we feel like we want whilst we're single is harmless, actually it's corruptive, and I want to point us towards a vision of what the Bible says this weekend and next week. The two choices are we can either chase our instincts or we can train our instincts. One pathway leads to sacrificial love, and one pathway doesn't. The Bible actually doesn't teach that every sin is the same. I've heard that preached before, that all sin is the same, but actually when it comes to sexual sin, the Bible talks not about, as with every other sin, resisting temptation. It says flee. It's a different category. Flee is the advice. And so it corrupts sexual sin, especially if you're single and avoiding real relationships through porn and masturbation. It corrupts you out of growing to be like Jesus. And it begins to form you, not in Jesus' mold, but in our cultural mold. I want to give you a new vision. That forming desires and actions channeled towards God and channeled sacrificially towards your community and people around you and your future partner actually is achievable by the work of the Spirit and is something that we want you to do and support you in in this church. So next week we're going to look at more of that. Next week also if you're single, we're going to look a little bit about how singleness can be an amazing period of your life. And it's not just purgatory. Okay, finally, I just want to end this with a bit of a bigger application. And that's for us as a whole church. 
I've tried uh, earlier in the summer, I preached a little bit about porn and masturbation. And today we're obviously covering sex within the context of relationships. Next week we're going to cover more about lust and purity. I have tried to set a bit of an initial opening gambit to say we should talk about some of these things as a church. I want to just pitch the vision of what a church would look like that is whole when it comes to sex and sexuality. The options for a church are to avoid talking about it. To avoid it in its extreme, it's just awkward to bring up. Some of the words you've used in this preach, Rich, are not cool for a Sunday. Or we could concede fully to the sexual hyper-sexualization in our culture. And I want to just pitch for you that I think, Redeemer, we can go for something totally new. A wholeness when it comes to sex and sexuality that you won't find elsewhere in Ealing or in this amazing city because our culture is messed up. In many ways, it's not our job to tell the world how to be the world, is it? But standing here today, actually, if we're building this church, if you're building this church with us, it is our job to tell the church how to be the church. And when it comes to these issues, we can fight for restoration and wholeness in our community. Christian author Philip Yancey says in a book called Rumors of Another World, outside of the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. Surveys show millions have left the church in disgust over its hypocrisy about sex, especially when priests and ministers fail to practice what they preach. We've got a terrible, terrible track record on sex and sexuality as a global church. But we want to be building a church with a culture of wholeness and not brokenness when it comes to sex and marriage and dating and singleness. I was struck whilst we were singing just that you stood before my failure and carried the cross for my shame. And I think Jesus is really good at restoring broken communities to wholeness, not just broken lives. We want to have an incredibly rich vein of demonstrating that we individually and in families and marriages and as a church are so in love with Jesus that we have a vision for his kingdom and a better way. A rich vein of demonstrating that even though we could be sexually satisfying our desires outside of committed marriage, outside of our covenants, we are not going to because of God's call on our lives. We're not there yet, and we're going to build it slowly, but I'd love us to start the conversation. I've got a vision for us to be a family where spiritual fathers give guidance to spiritual sons around sex and sexuality, where they call courage out of each other. And mothers spiritually with daughters spiritually. I've got a vision for us to be that type of church where we can talk about our brokenness. For some... Next week, especially as we talk about what it means to repent from sexual sin in your life, this is going to be a couple of weeks of thinking about things that have been done to you that have caused you to be broken sexually. Or things that you have done, choices you've made that cause you to have a sense of failure in your life. I want to tell you, Jesus is going to enable us to follow his way in this city by a work of his Holy Spirit. And we can live for him because he died to remove our sin. He was broken to save us from brokenness. 
Redeemer. He was broken to save you from brokenness. And he was broken to save us as a church community from brokenness when it comes to sex and sexuality. If you've got no other actions from today, I'd encourage you, if you're a young man, to find a spiritual father in the church in the next week and just say, I'm a bit broken. I'd love to just talk to you about it. Can you pray with me? And maybe even today in the prayer team, you're a young man, you're you're a young woman, and you want to find a spiritual mother, maybe you can find one of them today and just say, I'd love to open a conversation. I'd love to open a dialogue. Hopefully you've found today helpful in just opening that up.